All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, the talky and sometimes touchy-feely version of my book, Photo Work, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I'm Sasha Wolf with my, I think I've been saying here with my, but it's a virtual <laughs> here, so virtually here with my friend and producer, Michael Chauvin Dalton, who I think we just heard giggle. Hi, Michael. <laughs> Hi. Yes, I am from the uh, great beyond in the virtual realm. Not that beyond, just New Jersey. (laughs) Don't get carried away. Hey. (laughs) Some people people think of New Jersey as as the great beyond. I Um, know that very well. Sorry. It took me a while to get used to moving to New Jersey. But yes, anyway. Dunking on Jersey. Dunking in the the first 60 seconds of the podcast. (laughs) So uh, listeners might hear a a slight change in in your audio quality because after uh, several permutations of trying different things to reduce little echoes and sounds and sirens and things like that, we finally found a a place for you to record. uh, And uh, the recording is better, but it, it did come at a cost, a little cost maybe to your dignity. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if I manage to get through this intro sounding in any way, like having any gravitas whatsoever, it would be a miracle because I am um, in my closet. Yeah, I am. Yeah, laugh away. Everyone laugh. Get it out of your system. At my age, in the closet, I'm, I'm not, I, I won't. I won't, a million jokes come to mind, but it's, of course, shooting fish in a barrel, so I'm going to control myself. But, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, this is, you know, I mean, obviously, look, it's just so much easier to do these things either by building a home recording studio or by being in a professional recording studio. And I've been doing, I've I've had neither of those things, but... You know, I was not happy with the sound quality on any of the previous episodes, so I decided to do what I'd been trying to avoid doing, which was, of course, moving into my closet. But <laughs> let's just say that I've turned my closet into a recording studio. Let's just call it a recording studio. Yes. I mean, why does it have to be a closet? I mean, okay, I am looking at coats, and <laughs> I'm surrounded by jackets, and... um but those coats and jackets are what's uh, helping you right yeah, now. They're man. doing their their part. Yeah, they're doubling <laughs> as uh, as as acoustic uh... <laughs> absorbers. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> of course, the other question is, where is Peanut? Yeah, Peanut is okay. So I can't. I have to keep the closet door open about an inch. Um, because there's an automatic light and if the door was closed all the way I'd be not only in the closet but I would be in the dark and that's just I'm not willing I'm I'm willing to suffer for the podcast but I'm not that's just it's just too much so the door is open about an inch and I swear to god that Peanut's nose is is in that inch because you know, she wants to be in here with me, doesn't understand why she's on the other side of the door. How could we possibly be separated while being in the same same house? Right. Yeah. So she's basically right next to me. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, today's episode is a conversation with 
the photographer Adam Katziff. And what did you think about the conversation? I thought this conversation uh, revealed more about the kind of relationship, the connection, the, the mentorship that you have with uh, those artists that you represent. There were so many uh, interesting parts of this conversation that where uh, Adam is sort of recalling things you said to him, advice you've given to him, and even the, just the idea of you know, being in the moment and recognizing success and, and taking in those times where people, you know, uh, are celebrating with you and really holding on to that instead of just sort of thinking about the next thing. Uh, I thought, um, you know, insight into the the way you not only talk about the work, but you talk about sort of living the life really came through in this episode. Oh, good. Yeah, that's that that's great. Yeah, I there is definitely some of that. I mean, you know, I realized after I recorded the conversation with Adam last week that Adam was in his 20s when we started. Adam has a certain maturity. I mean, I think I've always yeah, almost been fooled even though I know when he was born, but I always think of him <laughs> as being older than he is. But, you know, Adam's about 20 years younger than me. So, you know, he had a just a lot of maturity when I when I first met him. But yeah, of course, I've been able to, you know, just just pass on certain little nuggets of of semi wisdom that I've had just from just because of what I've been through and, and life experience that that he hadn't been through yet. But that is that is a fun part of the talk. Yeah. And I, I think it's also indicative of it's not just a a business relationship that you actually are interested in this idea of of trust between uh, you and those that, that you represent so that when you are discussing uh, developing work or critiquing work that everyone understands it this isn't just about business and selling that this is also about making the work that you want to work in and being successful at it yeah I mean look I don't think we say this explicitly. I may have this may have come up in my in episode one with Brian Scott, but you know this is a long game. I mean, I really believe in the long game, and so you have to just let things develop in their own time. And yeah, I never play that. I never play the short. You know, it's always mm. trying to think about my artists as living long lives and having long careers, and and yeah, letting things you know unfold as they're going to. I mean, we all know that some things can happen sort of tumble out quickly and other things take really long time to maturate. And, and we do talk about that. And and also, you know, it, it does get to the those some of those great questions that you have in the book, um, photo work, 40 photographers on process and practice and <laughs> a little plug. <laughs> Your checks in but, the mail. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, when you do ask Adam about how he identifies as an artist, he, he has this great line and he has a, a number of good lines in, in the podcast. I don't want to give them all away, but um, he says labels are like funerals. They're oh, yeah, not great. for they're not for the the person or the you know the artist. They're they're actually for the the people who are there. Right. It's for other people. It's for well, other people. Right. Artists don't need those labels for their own identification. It's for other people. So we we have made an executive decision that uh, we're not going to read bios on air <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Right? I just felt really self-conscious doing it, and it just, you know, you know, I made such a big point in the book with the Aperture team when we were 
sort of at the home stretch that I didn't want these like incredibly long bios accompanying all the contributors sections in in the book. So we have these really short bios and then we have all these really fun other things like what was your first photo book? What was the first show you saw? So we decided to sort of have more fun with that. And it's because I just bios drive me nuts. Now, it's, it is, of <laughs> course, important to know like sort of major milestones of someone's career. But for the most part, I, I find them unhelpful and silly. And I just didn't want to be in a position of reading them every week. So we'll just have that in the show notes. Where will that be on the like whatever podcast platform? It, the description. Yeah. So the, there's always a description of the podcast, a very short description, but uh, we can yeah, we can include the bio in the descriptions. OK, good. That's great. And um, look, and obviously, you know, we expect people to be Googling, right, because we're talking about art and you can't see what we're talking about. So we always assume that anyone listening if they're not really intimately familiar with the guest's work, we'll be, we'll be looking all that up. So. Yep, we're a visual arts podcast on the radio, basically. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Woohoo! Whose fan was this? God, jeez. All right, well, I think that covers... I will just say it's also very hot in the closet, so I'm... I'm <laughs> <laughs> I love talking to you, but um, yes. <laughs> if you hear, like, if we keep talking, you might hear a thud, and then <laughs> you'll be you like, Sasha? <laughs> Sasha? I assume at that point, Peanut will have figured out how to open the door with her nose, and she will come and save me. But... It will be a great test. To test. <laughs> <laughs> right, our relationship. Anyway, yes. Michael, thank you so much for uh, chatting and, and starting us off again. Be well, and um, yeah, uh, kick this thing off. Oh, always my pleasure, and uh, feel free to uh, leave the closet now. Thank you. <laughs> and here is your conversation with Adam Katziff. Adam Katziff, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, and thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sasha. It's an honor to have a conversation <laughs> with, with someone which are, uh, seems pretty limited these days. So this is a nice, nice change to my normal everyday life right now. Yeah, we've we've busted you out of of lockdown to have this conversation with you. Right. Me. Uh, so you're in um, outside of Boston, right? Yep, in Brookline which is just on the border of Boston and in my studio currently, which is at home. You know, you moved back from California a couple of years ago. So actually, why don't you tell us a little bit about your trajectory of how you wound up career-wise where you are right now, and that'll give people a little sense of your travels as sure, well. Sure, sure. Well, I grew up in just north of Boston. So, and my wife, Amy, is uh, grew up here in Brookline and at MIT, where her parents work and are housemasters. So we're, we're local to this area. And we met out here and went to California. A, a long story that maybe we'll get into is uh, what led me to going to grad school at Stanford. But that's what brought us out to, to California in the Bay Area. And we were there for I guess, eight years, which seems like a long time now. But we were there for eight years and decided that we were not Californians after all. <laughs> not that we ever thought we would be, but really wanted to be home near our families and both both felt that uh, 
the East Coast and Boston in particular was where where we felt most at home. And so we moved back. And uh, just last summer, we we moved into our current house. And uh, this is a studio here, which was a nice shift. And I'm very thankful for now, given the, the current state of things. So we've got a yard, which the kids can run around in and uh, a studio. So I feel very fortunate for both of those things in our current world. I, I can't believe you've left out glory in, your, um, <laughs> in this rundown of uh, people who benefit from the, um, yeah. So your first child was a, a dog. Yes. Oh, well, I don't know if we can call her a dog, but <laughs> but yes, well, yeah, species why. Yeah. And actually, Sasha, the first time you and I met in person was, I think, like a couple of weeks after Glory entered our lives as a little puppy. And yeah, she's a bull terrier. And for those of you that are wondering what I mean when I say she's not quite a dog, you just go to YouTube and Google bull terrier antics and you'll be very entertained. Well, she looks a little bit like a dinosaur. (laughs) Or or a miniature horse or yeah, a pig, lots of things. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah. She's she's a wonderful part of our family and and absolutely not to be forgotten. You and I are good friends and I've been representing you for a very long time representing your work. And uh, we share a lot of goofy, silly things like our obsession with coffee, intermittent fasting, and dogs, which <laughs> when I <laughs> when I think about it and when you and I are just sort of goofing around talking about these things seems perfectly normal. But just now when I say it out loud, it makes me feel a little bit like a cliche of, I'm not sure of what, but anyway, but but it's the truth. These are these are things you and I tend to text about at all hours it's of the true. day and night. It's true. Well, also, we have a, a, a love of nice ba- bags. Like, uh, okay. Just keep piling on. Waxed the, canvas in particular. <laughs> I know. I think that this is you and I are going, it's going from bad to worse here. <laughs> I'm, I'm sinking us here, Sash. <laughs> all right. So, well, one thing you, you skipped over, which was that you went to mass art uh, for undergrad. That's so. true. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And... and yeah, I guess in answering the question, I was thinking of travels and mass art didn't seem like traveling because it was my my local city. But yeah, that I should start there because that I, I really consider my education there, which I feel very fortunate to. I I feel very fortunate to have had. I'm sorry that no, that's okay. For peanuts yeah. making, uh, she didn't get the memo today. Yeah, I was going to say quiet. there's a memo. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Uh, Sorry, go on. That's okay. So I went to MassArt and I feel I did not know I was going to be a photo major. It's interestingly, which was not why I went there, but it's interestingly the only state-run art school in the country, which I find, you know, in hindsight now even more special than I did at the time. But I went there and wound up in the photo department. I had a real love of photography, but when I was there, it was just the perfect fit for me. At least that's how I think of it now. And I really thrived there and had wonderful professors, uh, Abe Morell and Laura McPhee and David Hilliard and just people that really, and Barbara Bosworth, who I, I can't believe I, yeah, she's a good friend and, and also someone who you're working with now, but she is- Keeping it in the family. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All people that I, I really consider my 
really influence influential in my shaping as an artist and as a photographer. So yeah, and then I worked, I was felt really fortunate to work at a color lab called Color Services and and they printed for all of these professors and artists and artists around the world and made exhibitions for museums and galleries and you know collections and things like that and and that was my job for 4 years uh, out of mass art doing C printing and you know color analog darkroom printing and then working running the mounting department where we would take those prints and make them flat and ready to hang on a wall and yeah that I think in in a way those two foundations are what led me to want to go to a grad school that was like the one at Stanford which was absolutely anything but a photo program and it was an art program you know we're very interdisciplinary and very small and i felt like my my upbringing between mass art and color services was so you know perfect in a lot of ways like photography oriented that i felt that as an artist i I need to get a little uncomfortable <laughs> or yeah, break that, that comfort zone a little bit. Wait, explain that. I'm, I'm really interested in what you mean by that. Cause Stanford, yeah, was very unexpected is an unexpected choice after mass art. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Well, I went, yeah, mass art was, you know, it's just an art school where a bunch of artists and I was in the photo department and all of my undergrad and then the grad school graduate students there were all photographers, artist photographers, not even, you know, the different range of what you could be, you know, lumped under for a photographer. And we shared uh, a history. We shared an encyclopedia of knowledge in some ways. Not, not, And I'm not even talking just technical, which was always a nice benefit of that, as you could get pretty dorky with anyone you wanted in the program. But it more the, you know, if I say XYZ by Emmett Gowan, for instance, who was someone who was very influential on me at the time and still is. If I said this work or this picture of Edith or whatever, they all knew it. Like uh, we could have this, you know, if I say Sally Mann, instantly everyone knows who I'm talking about. And mm-hmm. and that was at the lab too. We just, we were very fluent in that. And and I feel like that actually speaks a lot to the strength of mass art as a, as a photo department. And I just... I don't think I could have gotten a better photo education and art education. And, uh, but that being said, it was definitely photocentric. And I knew that a few years out of, out of mass art, you know, I'd go to MoMA, I'd go to museums and whatnot. And I would love the photo floor. I would love the exhibitions and, and, you know, be inspired and find, you know, my favorite, photographs on the walls and whatnot. But it, I, I kept finding and sort of surprisingly that I was inspired by the stuff that wasn't on the photo floor. More whether it was a Richter painting or Joseph Boys, who was very, inf- I was very influenced by at the time, just in using objects and using material. And I, yeah, I, I felt like, you know, see, feeling that feeling kind of in my gut of like, I'm thinking about the boys, or I'm thinking about, boy, it seems like I like the Germans at the moment, Richter or jo- Joseph Boys, <laughs> uh, which I suppose I do. But yeah, it felt like, wow, all right, I need to be surrounded. It wasn't to say I wanted to make sculptures or I didn't want to make, you know, that I wanted to make paintings. I, I didn't feel that at all. It just felt like those are the types of people I want to be talking to and I want to have be influenced by and have looking at my work. 
And so Stan, just finish that thought. Oh, sure, yeah. Just tie that off for people who don't really understand what the program at Stanford was like. Right. So, I mean, A, you know, first of all, it's very small. It five uh, grad students are accepted into the program each year. So there's two years, so 10 MFA students total. You get a ridiculously beautiful studio. Uh, that's like, you know, anywhere from 500 to a thousand square feet. Each artist has their own. I never had a studio before, so that was something unusual. Uh, it's fully funded, which was not the main drive of me going there. I hope to be able to make a decision with financial stuff. It is. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And, and it absolutely played into my decision, but I, I think I could say that even if that weren't there, it still would have felt like the right program to me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I'm very thankful that it was in hindsight for sure. And yeah, you take classes throughout Stanford. So, you know, all the five other people, like there might be another photographer there. <laughs> Possibly not. So you're interacting a lot more with painters or sculptors or that's sort of what you're getting at. Totally. Yeah. And actually Stanford at the time I was there and, and still seemed to have a very sound heavy presence, both in the faculty and the other students, a lot of artists working with sound. So that was, yeah, I would say that was the, you know, the, the most represented artistic demographic at the moment. So, so yeah, yeah, I was, Absolutely had the resources that I needed, but I was definitely out of my comfort zone when I started. And that was a, it was a rockier start, I think, than I anticipated in the beginning. But ultimately what I think led to the work that you've seen and that has come out into the world. So jumping off from there, what type of artist do you consider yourself now, today? How would you describe yourself? Right. That's a good question. That's a very good question. And one that, you know, my gut instinct, the moment you ask that, it says, well, I'm not an artist. So how can I answer that? And, and you know, I think there's a little teenage angst of not liking titles and things like that coming out there. But but the truth is, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I don't think in those terms. Do I make art full time? Absolutely. You know, that's and I have been for a long time. And that being said, whenever anyone asks me, what do, well, hey, what do you do? People that I'm meeting for the first time, oh, what's your job? I have a really hard time saying I'm an artist. I mm-hmm. And I've never fully understood why. I think I just, for some reason, find that the label of that feels like a little odd, maybe especially artists, like it carries a lot of weight. Oh, he's an artiste, you know, that sort of thing. Like I- It feels too pompous. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think it is used that way of, you know, so many people saying, oh, he does such good, he's such a good chef or he's such a good this, he's an artist or he's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like that sort of like, if you're good at something, you're an artist. And Mm -hmm. do I make art? Yeah, I think so. I'd like to think so. And I- but it is always a question. And I get that a lot, you know, when I'm out photographing in, in the landscape and people will be around and see me using somewhat unusual and fancy looking equipment. They're like, the, the question they come up to and say is, oh, are you a, are you a professional? <laughs> I'm always right. like, my gut's like, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> no, definitely not. I mean, and, and I think I sort of imagine photographing a bar about mitzvah or something. And I'm like, oh, I could not, not to say that, I just wouldn't be very good at it. That's that's the reality. Like, I don't have that sort of professional. And so I think that's what they're asking. But then I have to say, oh, well, yeah, I guess, you know, 
technically my living comes from photographs and like this is what I do as a job. And even if I'm teaching and doing other things, like it's around photography. And yeah, I am a professional. And then they sort of light up and then ask for my business card. And I have to say, oh, well, I don't have any of those. <laughs> so I guess I'm not. And then I say, oh, but Sasha has business cards. She's my business card. <laughs> and, I, and I give them your website. And that's You're my business card, Sasha. When we get off of this, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pack some of my actual business cards and envelope and send them to you. I, it might be helpful, actually. <laughs> uh, but could you say I'm a photographic artist or does that? Yeah, I don't even need that. Honestly, I'm, you know, I, I hear this a lot now. and I think we all do of, of in the last 10 years or so people. I'm, a, I'm an artist who uses photography or I'm an artist who works in photography. And I you know, I'm fine saying I'm a photographer. I, mm-hmm. I I think the labels are oftentimes helpful for, you know, the context of like the people around you. Mm-hmm. I, I think if in an art context, I can say I'm a photographer and we kind of all know what that means. But in another scenario, I say I'm a photographer and they might think I'm doing like commercial work or weddings yeah, or, you know, that sort of thing. And I then I sort of need to clarify. But I don't know, I guess I've always thought of labels as like this as kind of like a funeral, right? It's like, they're not for the person in the casket. It's like the funeral's not for the person in the casket. It's for the people around to help to understand and cope with it. And I think the labels like that, like, I don't feel like I need the labels for myself, but I do find them, you know, to be helpful and to, to be able to help other people to understand what it is that I do. So Yeah, no, I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I mean, I think one of the reasons this is just so personal and idiosyncratic to me, for me, I, mean, I think one of the reasons I'm sort of curious about this is I know when I was making films and people would say, what do you do? I mean, first of all, I made a living like working in production. So there was that. But I also found it hard to say, well, I'm a filmmaker because I didn't feel successful enough. Right. Like it was my own, it was my own insecurity about, you know, well, is that true? You know, do I, does my work writing and directing films check enough boxes to allow me to use that title when talking about myself? Anyway, so I I don't know. I'm always sort of interested in like what part of this is how we want to identify ourselves, how we want to be thought of, and then how do we feel about ourselves? You know, what part do our insecurities play in how we think of ourselves and and what we do in the art world? Because right. it is like so, I mean, I think you described it really well. Like it is, it, it's, there's something that's sort of amorphous. Like I'm a photographer, I could be a wedding photographer, or I could be a photographic artist. Right? I, I don't know. There, it, it is obviously not simple to answer. Right. And I love what you said. And I am really, I, I'm really thankful that you, you mentioned the sort of self-consciousness or, or feeling like I haven't made it yet enough to assume said title. And I think that absolutely plays into it. I mean, I remember, I, and we probably, this is probably, I'm assuming 
you know, maybe for you, this is like a moving mark. It's like when you're, when I was not in grad school and before that I was just out of undergrad, I was like, oh, I'll be an artist when, you know, and I have my MFA or I go through my grad school. Then it was like, I get that. I was like, oh, okay, well, all right, well, it, maybe when I have a gallery or, you know, if I work with a gallery or something like that, then, then I'll be an artist. And then sure enough, you came along and we started working together and I didn't, <laughs> things didn't quite change. I was like, oh no, okay. All right. I got to start selling work. I, maybe it's the way the IRS like counts it. Like, do I make any money from <laughs> selling work. I need to make, which is absurd, right? That's like the most absurd, but it was like, yeah, maybe if I sell work, then I can be called an artist on paper or maybe, and then, you know, so now I have no idea. I, I, nothing's changed. That mark keeps moving. So now I figure, you know, a record. Well, you're being, hold on, hold on a second. Cause you, you, you're being, it's amazing. The sort of intense modesty you just slipped in there that <laughs> <laughs> that our our listeners may not know, but you know, and of course, maybe it's it's also just that sort of way that talking about money is considered sort of tacky. But you sell a lot of work. I mean, you are very successful. You're a very successful artist in terms of sales. I mean, let's just say it. That sure. you know, what's to say it, right? So, well, you sell the work, Art. <laughs> you sell the work. I make the work that you sell. But yeah, no, no, that's I, yeah, I appreciate. So when that. you're talking about moving the goalpost, that's another goalpost you've now moved. I mean, you know mm. how I feel about. I think people have to be really careful about moving goalposts because yeah. it's great if it keeps you motivated, but it's not great if it leaves you with a sense of never actually achieving that somehow right. the. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember this, but I used to always say this to my artists before opening nights of their exhibitions. And I know I said this to you, which is make sure tonight when people are coming up to you and telling you how much they love your work and how proud they are of you, if they know you or if strangers are coming up and saying, oh, my God, your work is so wonderful. And this is my I love this image in particular, whatever it is, people are saying, hear it hear it. It's so hard mm. in those moments because often you get overwhelmed, but it's so important to hear those things. And then I used to always say to you guys, go home if you don't go out after the opening and get plastered and you know, <laughs> too drunk to pick up a pen and right. um, a piece of paper, write down some of the most wonderful things people said to you. Right. And then, then when you wake up the next morning, you know, look at those things. And because these are these moments that you have to take in, you right. have to take them in. You can't just fly over it and you have a big opening and then, okay, what's, what's next? What do I, I have know. to achieve? You have to stop and you, ha I mean, it really is like stop and smell the roses, but it's so important. Right. Well, it's funny you say that. And that was actually something that I saw sort of early on at Stanford was when I was in my first year and the second years were going, you know, they weren't taking the MFA show super seriously as as the professors thought and missing deadlines, things like that. And one of the professors finally said, you know, what the hell? Something has to be at stake here. You, what are you going to take it only serious when you've got the retrospective at Guggenheim? Like, is that yeah, is that right. when you start taking like, You have to take every show seriously. And your name is on this and the work's on the wall. And and, I, and I've always been that way. You know, I've, I've, I've yeah. always, I'm just too persnickety and picky about what I put out into the world. And um, I mean, I don't have any social media accounts probably for that reason. Like, I just... I, I guess I like playing it close to the chest and that when it's when it's out in the world, I feel good about it. And I feel really 
like it's the right thing. And I I know this topic may come up, you know, later, but no, I, I, I think that I know you always want to move that goalpost, but right, I I guess keeping that it is a goalpost that's always moving and it's important to But not at the expense of genuine feelings of success and satisfaction as they come up, right? Agreed. Yeah. And and I think what you said and I appreciate that. I think what you tell the artists and told me before the opening, it's, you know, I don't know if it hit me in the, quite the way I needed it or that I don't know if it hit me in the way that it did, that way I would need it now almost. But I, I honestly think the hardest part, at least for me as an artist and as a maker of things, especially now as sort of isolated as I think we probably all feel, but all the work that goes out into the world, whether it's on a wall for an exhibition, whether it's at a show, whether it's at a fair, whether, you know, I'm not the one having those conversations. Like I don't talk to people about my work very often. And it's sort of the like weird fiction of art school. I think that like, you're all sitting around, you know, you got 20 or 15 photographers and a couple of professors and you're all sitting around and talking about your work. And that just like, it's actually, I mean, it happens. I have some friends and colleagues that I do that with, but it's pretty rare. Like we're kind of in a bubble as an artist. And I, yep. I'm not a, I'm really not a hermit personality wise. Like I like to talk through problems and I like to, I'm a pretty social person verbally. And that's been, I think, you know, quote unquote, making it as an artist. I, I sort of laugh because I'm like sitting there by myself. I'm like, well, this was the goal. <laughs> it's like, here I am, you know, by myself. And and so it is important though. I think that, and you're always wonderful about, you know, reporting, like what was the conversation, good and bad, you know, you don't sugarcoat it or I, at least I don't think maybe you do, but just like, what is the dialogue after a fair? You know, what is the conversation? And, you know, we could sell a bunch of work, but that doesn't mean that I ever know anything past me shipping the print and getting the paycheck. And, and no, and I do try and, you know, when I hear from a client, when I get, sometimes clients will send me photographs of my artist's work on their walls. And I do, I do tend to pass that on to you guys. I want you to see that. And if someone says to me, oh my God, I mean, I think you and I had this recently where a client uh, bought one of the large waterfalls and, you know, it just has made her so, so happy. She just spends all this time sitting and staring at it. And it's been just a wonderful addition to her life, I think, especially the last, you know, five months. And I think I, I did tell you that I did pass, pass that on. I think this Mm. was in March, maybe April, but no, of course you don't always, I, I definitely hear as your art dealer, I definitely hear more than you do in that, in that respect, which is a little odd. But I think it's an, I think, I do think for artists, it is an important thing to find not to be you know, bathing in praise from people and all admirers. Like, I don't think that's good. But I do think it's important to be able to find ways of having dialogues around your work in a helpful way. Yeah, I agree. Let me me pivot to a larger sort of more existential question. Is there value in your work, in the actual work, not in the making of it? Is there value in what you're putting out into the world? Well, value to who, I suppose. You mean value to... Yeah, value to who? Like when you ask that, I'm curious. Like, do you mean society? Do you mean yeah, the people yeah. buying it? Do you mean me? Well, I, no, I think the people buying it, seeing it. I don't know. Yeah, uh, no. I, I hey, I have a, I have a feeling we all ask ourselves these these questions, and I do think art is important. 
I know it's made a huge difference in my life. I know, I mean, look at the history of human civilization. It's been a long lot. (laughs) It's sort of been the constant stream almost above almost everything else that has been since the start of, you know, people living in caves. And so I trust in that, that there is value to artwork. And in that way, I hope that my work shares part of that you know, that role in society is value, but it's, you know, especially, I don't know, in times like now, and it also seems, you know, I guess the art market side of it makes, I mean, which is weird because the art market and selling work is like weirdly where art really gets the value number put on it. Like how much is this thing worth monetarily? Yeah. Well, that's a different kind of value. Yeah. That's a different value, but it, but I think, I, it also like that dialogue around like the art market, like it does sometimes feel like, where is the value of this? Like these are luxury goods, you know, in some ways. And it's something I struggle with a lot. I have a, a really close friend who's a musician and he plays in large venues and whatnot. And I always loved how that was so like democratic, like you know, anyone could listen to music, especially now it's easier, but like anyone could kind of own an album they could yep. and a little more and go see it in person. And, you know, he made his living and makes his living through mass numbers and that so many people can own that thing that he makes. And I always felt that, I don't know, am I making, I'm making work that not a lot of people in the world can afford. And the goal is to make it, I suppose, the, the goal of the art market is to make it less and less affordable. And that's something that, you know, I know you and I have talked about and something that's, I think about it. I do. I, it, is it crippling? Absolutely not. But it is something that, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I like the idea of, in my work, I guess, in particular, I think a lot of work looks good in books. I think a lot of work can be seen on websites. And I think my work doesn't fit into that so well. And it's very much about the print in a frame on the wall lit well. And yeah, you can see it in a gallery or museum, but to see it in that way, you do have to own it. And But do I think there's value? I hope so. I really, I, I trust that there is, although at times I doubt it. So I want to talk a little bit about sort of where you are right now. Mm-hmm. You, the work that you've predominantly made over the past 10 years-ish has been, as you just alluded to, work that is very dark, Mm -hmm. multiple bodies of work that are all black and white and have just a tremendous amount of dark values in them, literally. And A few few all-white ones. (laughs) Yes, right, of course. There's the all-white ones also, right, yeah. But the most popular of those series is the Rivers and Falls series. And I guess I'm going to ask you two questions at once and just answer however you want. I mean, the two things I'm sort of would love to hear you talk about is one, how do you follow up something as popular as Rivers and Falls? Because I imagine that there's a lot of pressure, not from me. No, not, not from you. Yeah. But, but in, in general, because you've, you know, you have made a living selling that work and have gotten tremendous amount of really wonderful feedback about it. Mm. What's the struggle with, with creating a new body of work? Uh, You know, how do those, how do those things, you know, play on your mind? Right. Yeah. Well, I think actions speak louder than words in some ways. And if you asked me how I follow up that, we had our, well, to be fair, I, that work started, it started when I was at Stanford and 
I think in a lot of ways grew out of being in California, being in the West and being, you know, having that experience. So I started, you know, making the landscapes, the night landscapes back in around 2012. And that evolved into the rivers and falls. I, I thought of it as a slightly, you know, different project, but we had that show in what, what 2015. Is that right? And I sort of stopped. <laughs> I stopped making them. And it's not, not entirely true. I, I still make them, but I'm not actively seeking to make that picture. So how do I follow it up? I follow it up by not making them anymore, which is insane in some ways. I mean, it's, it's a side of myself that I'm comfortable with to a certain degree, but I mean, I could have made my life a hell of a lot easier on myself if I, you know, evolved and slowly made new ones. And I don't know, I guess I think of it though, as maybe I'll link it up with, I, I like the way Sugimoto has, works in series in that, you know, his current work is not seascapes or, you know, the horizon pictures, but he's still making them, you know, he still continues to, to make them. And so I think that's, that's how I look at that work. But yeah, I, I really pivoted. Not to You're say- You're shooting in color now? I'm shooting in color. Yeah. Yeah. A lot has changed on sort of the technical front, but I like a technical, I'm not only tech, when I say technical, that also, that doesn't mean camera and equipment as much as it means the conceptual side of, of what I'm trying to get at. Mm-hmm. I, I seem to, I, I've just, every time I've started something new, I like, I like a challenge. And I think I really, it is a struggle. And, but it's a struggle that I think is an important one to have, at least for me. It's what motivates me to make work and to, you know, I, I, I'm sort of a, again, not, not like super camera oriented, but technical person. Like I like tinkering. Like it took me, for instance, with the rivers and falls and all that dark work, it took me over a year in a spray booth to figure out how to exhibit that work without glazing. And, you know, that's probably my most frequent email after like a fair or something is I get other artists emailing me, how did you do that? Or what is your formula? And, you know, the funny thing is I've never played it close to the chest. I tell them exactly what I do and exactly the formula and what I use. And I say, and I, and I, you know, earnestly say, good luck. You know, it's, I, I hope I wish you the best. Listen, I remember when I first visited you out in California, oh my and you, God. you were basically like in a hazmat suit with oh, like yeah. a gas mask on. <laughs> Which is right when Breaking Bad was out. <laughs> and I remember, I do remember I had, I had my like spray tent on the against a fence and on the other side of the fence lived uh, my neighbor who was a firefighter it turned out and and I, we weren't like we didn't chat a lot but he sees me going out in this hazmat suit and big respirator and and I wave you know grinning ear to ear like oh hey <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself boy I wonder what he uh, thinks I'm up to in there what we're talking about is that you spray a lacquer we don't put any glazing over your dark work it just would become too much like a mirror so yeah. Yeah, I think of it actually as as looking through a window at night versus being out in the landscape at night. Right. That sort and, of and that's a wonderful way of putting it. So in order to protect the prints as best we can, yeah. you spray a lacquer that you know gives them some amount of protection and you had to tinker for a really long time yeah. to find one that didn't change the prints from looking the way you wanted them to look, basically. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I figure if the art thing doesn't work out, I could own a 
spray spray tanning salon or a, right. <laughs> a, a auto body shop where I could paint cars at this point. But no, it, it uh, I, I think that is this type of problem that I or or type of challenge that I find, which you know, having something that I want, like when I I wanted to make pictures that felt like being in the world at night. I, I wanted to replicate and bring that experience of being in this vastness back to a viewer, whether it's me or other people. And I want that to be as clean of a solution as possible. And, you know, keep in mind, I worked in this field as like a professional problem solver of mounting and framing and stuff. So I have that background and sensitivity to that. I mean, I had that sensitivity, which is what got me that job. And then that only got stronger being there. But you take one step at a time, one foot in front of the other, I guess. And and before you know it, you got a goddamn spray booth in the backyard. And, you know, you, you have something that you want to exist in the world. And I think as artists, or at least the way I work, is I have to have some sort of vision of what that final thing is going to be. And that might evolve over time, but I do envision, I very much envision what the thing is going to look like on the wall and what that experience is going to be. And what the path to get there, I don't know what, it, it takes some weird turns. I don't think that there's any right or wrong way to view work and especially not mine. And as you know, I mean, I'm making work that I expect and assume a pretty heavy role on the viewer to participate in. I mean, that's just the nature of the work. I mean, that's why, you know, they're so damn dark is I need sort of the the thing that I felt in front of an Ad Reinhardt painting when I finally got over his kind of pompous way of writing about painting and was like, all right, I'm going to actually try this and stand in front of it. And I've said, oh my God, this is like the most generous piece of art I've ever experienced because I'm making it, or at least I think I'm making it with the artist. And like he created a springboard for me to investigate something in myself. I know what you're talking about, but would you just, I mean, people can Google Ad Reinhardt and- Oh, sure. Yeah. Can you just- be more specific about. Oh yeah, he's he's like you know I think it's always the running probably he's probably the person that's like the running joke in like comic books or something or like comic strips of like conceptual art or whatever. It's like the black rectangle <laughs> and you know which started with Malevich and you know lots of people have dabbled in the white Rauschenberg and the white canvas and all of this. But but Reinhardt was the one sort of from the abstract expressionist uh, minimalist painting you know later that he started making just what looked like black canvases and they are really subtle and they have a very fragile surface which i appreciate and if you're looking at it from across the museum it looks like a black rectangle and you're like oh give me a break conceptual art <laughs> you know that's sort of the like and 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 for me like that never i actually have always loved minimal painting and minimalist art but well you're just, a minimalist yeah it's probably no no big surprise there <laughs> but my my hang up with him was always like just which a lot of the abstract expressionist men like these guys he's like Pollock and those, they were always like so we ended painting like this is the end like we have dominated you know and 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 Reinhardt was like really thought that that was the end of painting. And he wrote about it. And uh, Reinhardt scholars will probably disagree with all of these things, but that was my interpretation of it. And I just wasn't interested. But one, yeah, one day, and it was, you know, after being in Yosemite and a lot of these big places in California, it was at SF moment. I went up and I was like, all right, screw it. I'm going to try. And I just stood there and I felt this like, yeah, looking into this black rectangle, 
I, I like thought I saw something and, you know, it, it was sort of a cross motif of like slightly different variations of gray or even just the sheen of the paint and, you know, very subtle color hue shifts. And I remember the first seeing and I was like, is that there? Is it a reflection or is it my reflection? Or, you know, maybe I'm seeing it wrong or maybe it's not quite well lit. And then I was, no, 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 it's there. And that just, I mean, it went on for about 20 minutes. And before I knew it, you know, it turns out I think it it was in paint, but I had I had to play a role in forming that. And I I, I assume that's why that work, I, I don't know if other viewers of that work play that game, but I have to assume so. And that's exactly what you do in your dark landscape and Rivers and Falls series, is you ask the viewer to just stand there for a while and let the detail that is actually there reveal itself to you once your eyes start to adjust to the darkness. Right. And I, I love the idea of someone, you know, passing by from if they don't look closely, you know, saying, ah, black rectangle, you know, that's sort of like, I, I, that's sort of my dream is that someone like <laughs> swats it through the air, being like, oh, not interested, but then like comes back, you know, and like somehow sees it in a different way. You probably, do you see that happen? Would you yeah, say? of course. Absolutely. All the time. And I tell this to, you know, clients and people I'm working with showing your work all the time. I, I explain this, you know, look, with all my artists, I try very hard to be your ambassador. So when I'm talking about my artist's work, I'm trying to talk about it the way you would talk about it if you were there so mm. that, you know, I'm, I'm a good stand in. So listen, we have to wrap this up because we're going on for a while here, but I, I just want to say, I think it's a really beautiful, what you just talked about. I think there's a lot of, of value in what you, what you just said to people who are making work themselves. And I, because what you just described is influence mm. and a continuation, you know, an art historical continuation where you were very influenced by Ad Reinhardt and you can see that in your work and how sure. you take from one artist and, you know, take ideas, influences and, and, and work it into your own work. I mean, often I hear from people that they're scared of being influenced by, they oh. don't want to be derivative. Oh, and I always give me say, a break. People, right. Don't worry <laughs> so much about that. You, you know, you have your own point of view. Influence is a really beautiful thing. It can also, those it can just set you up with parameters right. that are very important. No, I think what you're, I think your advice to people is great. I, I think, and this is something I've seen with my students a lot and absolutely experienced myself a lot. And I think we all go through, I don't know, there's something about, right? Good art is new art in some ways and like is, you know, it's straight from the soul and uninfluenced. I think it's a lot of BS. And I think that actually good art also does have a dialogue, but the thing that I like to do is if I'm feeling, you know, when I'm doing something new like that, go go put your picture in an image search, something something like Pinterest or whatever, and then just see what the aggregate is of like what you find. You'll 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 feel like crap right away. Like, oh my God, everyone's done this. This is album covers. This is like interior design. This is all these things. And you'll just you'll realize like, you know what? Nothing's new, especially now. I mean, there's so many creators of things. And I think the way that I then manifest that is in kind of like what you said is, you know, you take your influences, 
Ad Reinhardt, Carlton Watkins, you know, in my case, and and others. Ansel Adams. Ansel Adams, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Carlton Watkins is my personal <laughs> of the old landscape guy's hero, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. These were all people that I was literally standing in the place that they made their pictures. I was yep. doing it in a different way, but but you know, I think if you stick with it long enough and you really listen to your gut and you listen to your own personal taste and your own personal experience. There's no way it's not going to be a genuine effort on your part that if it's new and it looks different, then great. You know, that's that's kind of a side project, I think, or a side effect of making work that's genuine to you. And can I also just say, like, because I think this is so important, I actually think there was such a show of confidence and strength when you were making your dark landscapes and you went and stood where Carlton Watkins or Ansel Adams had stood mm. and made some pictures and you were like... I'm going to stand here in homage to them, but I'm going to do my version. And, you know, I really, I love that confidence to acknowledge the dialogue. It's like you were sort of jumping in. It's a jazz band and you were jumping in for your solo and (laughs) riffing off of what had come before. And I just, I really love that. And I think people too often tie themselves up in knots trying to be like no one And I just think people waste too much psychic energy trying to create something that's not like anything in any way that's ever come before it. And it's like, oh my gosh. I mean, look at, I, 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 I hear, I say like, just make work that's genuine and don't make work that looks like anyone else. You know, that's easy to say, but you know, then the reality is when I stopped and said, this is done, it kind of didn't look too much like other stuff that I had seen. And it looked physically different. And I, you know, for me, I think that is something that ultimately is important that there's like something fresh, you know, we are in visual art after all, and you can have concepts be different and all of that. But ultimately, like, I wanted the thing to look a little different. And it's not to say that no one else had made images that look like this and haven't, because that's, not the case. But it can look different while tipping your hat. Totally. Right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, hey, I I sort of went into it like, well, what? why do I have to make pictures of Yosemite? Carlton Watkins did this with a mule team and tons of glass plates and like, I'm not going to do better. <laughs> like I can't, I can only build upon that and, and hope to bring my own stance on it. But so yeah, that's my my senses. You got to go through the motion. So you got to make yourself feel really bad and that all the work in the world's been made and then listen to your gut and follow yep. it and you'll you'll give birth to something that will probably be genuine. Right on. All right. Well, listen, I'm going to wrap it up here. Adam, thank you so, so much for doing my podcast. Of course, I love talking with you. And yeah, thanks and be well, be safe. Send my love to everyone, your whole crew, and we'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Sash. This has been fun. Okay. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye-bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The associate producer is Taylor Selsback, and the executive producer is Sasha Wolf. Our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and rate us with all the stars available on your listening platform. 